Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU. It's the economy. I'm Hari Anantaraman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Economies Design Lab at CU Boulder. following is a conversation revolving around cryptocurrencies and what it means to be a builder in web3 in 2013 a 19 year old canadian russian programmer by the name of vitalik buterin conceived the vision for a world computer a system that would let people run applications with no central authority at this point vitalik starts to explore names of elements from science fiction and one name catches his eye ether This inspires him to create a new blockchain named Ethereum that launched its network in 2015. Today, 8 years later, the Ethereum ecosystem holds a value of almost 500 billion dollars. Having said that, many listeners may associate crypto with scams, controversies, and the many legal ambiguities associated with it. While some of these allegations do come with merit, there are a lot of misconceptions surrounding the space as well. We've seen crypto bounce back from big falls multiple times. This is because of the few contributors who have strived to address the drawbacks of technology and work towards building a democratic internet. They are contributors who have dedicated their lives to this cause out of their own will because they believe that the blockchain has a greater good to offer. Ethereum since its inception has not been built by a traditional company with big walls or a hierarchical organization. It's rather been built by so many individual contributors working out of their homes and basements. They work out of different parts of the world speaking one common language, the language of web3. For the many who are outside the world of crypto, the belief in its legitimacy is sustained by the builders. Today, I have the opportunity to talk to one such builder from Ethereum, Austin Griffith. Austin and I will be talking about what it means to be a developer in web3 and how it transforms the internet as we know it today. Austin is a software developer turned educator and is a part of Ethereum Foundation. He is known for building tools, platforms and content for the Ethereum community and he has helped break barriers for so many who are new to the web3 world. Austin has over 50,000 followers on Twitter and 16,000 subscribers on YouTube. He is particularly known for his enthusiastic style of teaching while also getting hands-on with the mysterious nitty-gritties of blockchain. To see some of his work, you can visit austingriffith.com or follow him on Twitter, YouTube, or GitHub. Thank you for joining me, Austin. I'm very excited to have you. How are you doing today? Yo, 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 yo. Doing well, doing well. It's a cold day in Colorado. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here today, Austin. We're very happy to have you. Let's start off by diving into some existential questions about Ethereum. We want to warm our listeners up with what Web3 exactly is before we go further. Sounds great. The global crypto market is worth over a trillion dollars and there are at least 10,000 different cryptocurrencies that are recognized by the community. Could you tell us what makes Ethereum unique among these cryptocurrencies? That's a good question. So, I'm not a huge like speculator, I'm not a big trader, I'm not into cryptocurrencies for the currency. I'm in it for the building and I'm in it for the ability to build kind of 
incredibly neutral vending machines is kind of an interesting way to put it. But the ability to build a thing that will execute and do just what the code says in a decentralized way without a centralized party that can change it or censor it. And I think that that's where where Ethereum is very powerful. It has the smart contracts and it allows developers to write these smart contracts similar to like a little app that runs on your phone, but this app actually runs on a on a blockchain substrate and it's the kind of thing where no one can stop it and it does exactly what the code is supposed to do and it uses all these other like cryptographic primitives that we don't want to go into that are too nerdy but for a builder a builder is able to write a few simple lines of code and they can create a vending machine that anyone can access it's a way to build apps that can't be censored that can't be stopped and that you only have to trust the code and i think that trustlessness that's so important with ethereum and and with a smart contract platform and Honestly, there's there's other smart contract platforms out there. I think that Ethereum was just first, I think, in a lot of ways. Like Ethereum has captured a lot of the momentum. So what what makes it special, one of the things is just it was there first and it has done a good job of capturing an ecosystem. And it's a great platform to build these kind of decentralized apps on top of. But you'll have to, we, we can get into that more. I'm, I'm rambling too much about my love for Ethereum. <laughs> That's great. It's really interesting to see how really passionate you are about Ethereum and how aligned with you are with, with the larger cause of what the blockchain is trying to achieve. So what brought you to the Web3 space and what does a day look like in your life now that you're part of Web3? Ooh, that's interesting. Okay. A day in the life of Austin Griffith. I dropped my, both my kids off at school today and I rushed back to get here for a radio interview. So I... I got in because of solidity. Like I found the code for writing a simple smart contract. And as soon as I saw that code, I I could imagine what was going to happen there. I could see that we were building this sort of permissionless kind of vending machine kind of thing. And so I think that like uh, I I used to be a, a software developer at a company here in Fort Collins and we were building random things. I, I did a lot of like building the infrastructure and creating a tool that ran on top of Docker. And I kind of did a deep dive on Docker and went deep with that. But as soon as I discovered uh, smart contracts and Solidity and Ethereum, I kind of just like fell in love with that and did a deep dive and just like continued to go down that that rabbit hole. And I'm always like learning and studying smart contracts and smart contract systems. But a day in the life is more like I have a bunch of builders that I'm mentoring. There's a lot of teaching and a lot of tool building that happens. So there's a handful of meetings with different developers on direction and how things are going with their their tools that they're building. A lot of my calls are like mentorship sessions. So as developers come through Ethereum, I urge them to go to speedrunethereum.com and kind of speed run this curriculum that we've built that teaches you a lot of the ahas of building on Ethereum. And so a lot of my day is mentoring folks through that, helping other builders with their tools. And then sometimes I get to just like turn everything off and build things myself. And I love to do that too. So kind of a combination of those three things. Would you like to talk about any current project that you're actively working on? Yeah, I mean, I think speedrun Ethereum is the thing that I'm always trying to meme into existence. If you're a developer, there's so many different stacks and so many different places you can learn from. 
and some of them aren't the best. <laughs> some of them are are griftery and shilly. So uh, definitely we've created speedrunethereum.com to be just a kind of non-shilly, non-opinionated stack of curriculum that can take you through in a very linear way. Here are the aha moments that you need to have learning Ethereum, and this will teach you how to build on a top of Ethereum. So that's definitely like memetically where I'm pushing folks. Like if you are a developer, go speed run Ethereum. But that's probably only one of the shills. I probably have lots of shills we could shill. <laughs> <laughs> so we see that you've gotten into this crazy little world of crypto. The reason I call it crazy is because on, on one end, you see so many people getting into it for political reasons, for economic reasons. And on the other end, you see people diving into meme coins with all of their life savings just to be part of this movement. They want to buy pictures of absolutely plain rocks, again, for, for millions. So crypto is not just currency for many. It's a, it's a cultural movement. Yeah. What have you experienced personally being a part of this culture? So... Yeah, I try to separate myself from most of the culture described there. I would say kind of if you've heard about Web3 and you've heard about NFTs, you've put up your shields. It's like these people are all grifters and they're trying to get rich quick. And all they're doing is figuring out how to build systems to get rich quick. I'm a little bit allergic to that. And I think that that sadly has become a major narrative of NFTs and Web3 and folks that are in traditional technologies and they want to experiment with these things, you almost have to just like go through this wall of gross stuff. And just trust me, there's a bunch of gross stuff on the surface because humans are humans and they want to get rich quick and they want to figure out the shortest path to, you know, getting rich and broing down and escaping reality. But once you get through the get rich quick folks, there's actually a really, really neat lower level of technologists that are building a really, really interesting technology that I think, you know, decades long kind of time span will change how how we interact, I think, and how we coordinate at, at a larger level. So so there is some really neat stuff going on, but yes, there the space is full of grifters and other junk and people trying to get rich. And there's no centralized figure that can say, no, that's not us. We're actually this because we're so decentralized and it's so noisy. When you get in and you start learning this stuff, it almost feels like this is all just grifters trying to make money and trying to break through to a technologist and let them know like, hey, hey there's actually some like really, really neat stuff. Once you get through the BS, it's a hard battle. And that's something we're still working on. So when Austin is at a party, <laughs> does Austin make a pitch for crypto or does Austin prioritize getting invited to the next party? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that definitely like my wife has like a solid no crypto rule at our house. We just don't talk about it. it <laughs> and so like it depends on the party. I would say that a good party is using burner wallets to serve drinks at the bar. So if it's a great party, it's somehow using some kind of crypto wallet to teach people how to take care of their keys in a non-custodial way. And so in the best kind of party, I have a beer in each hand and I'm talking about non-custodial wallets and how we can bring agency to lots of people around the world who only have an internet connection and now they can 
custody their own funds and invest and do all sorts of weird things that I don't even know what's going to happen in the next 10 years on Ethereum. But that's me with two beers at the party. I definitely talk <laughs> about crypto when I'm allowed. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a very interesting idea. I, I see how, how you come up with these innovative teaching ideas. So I see you position yourself as an educator. So you want to make Web3 more accessible to people and you would love to see crypto going mainstream. In your experience, what are the biggest barriers to Web3 or crypto going mainstream today? For sure. Yeah, I think the custodial nature of things, kind of like how, you know, a couple decades ago, we had to learn what an email address was. And, uh, you know, maybe a decade before that, we had to learn what a phone number was, <laughs> uh, maybe more decades than that. I don't know. I haven't been around for that many decades. But uh, I think that one of the biggest hurdles is just self-custody. The fact that you have to kind of hold your own keys or you have someone else hold your own keys. And if someone else is holding your own keys, then basically your money is just money in a database that one guy can accidentally fat finger and make disappear, right? So I think that uh, self-custody is probably one of the biggest things. Taking care of your own keys. If you lose those keys, your money is gone forever. There's kind of some foot guns that are involved with this. So Self-custody is one of them. I think that to really get to where we need to be, there's a lot of education along with some account abstraction stuff. I think smart contract wallets will be kind of a thing of the future where instead of having what we call an externally owned account that has a private key that you have in your sock drawer, and if someone finds that in your sock drawer, your money's all gone, or if you lose it, your money's all gone. Instead of that, you have something more like a smart contract wallet that's deployed across all networks. And uh, when there's money in them, you can move that money around from using using one of these external accounts. So it's more kind of like a proxied wallet in a way. I think, I think that's one of them. Obviously, gas prices are another big thing. It's expensive to use mainnet Ethereum. And we are seeing some L2s and sidechain-like solutions that, well, not sidechains, but L2s bring the same level of security, but you get cheaper and faster transactions. So we have these networks that are running on top of Ethereum that settle to Ethereum that provide a more mainstream-like interaction and cost. So cost, the account abstraction, and owning your own keys, the self-custody stuff, I think there's just like a lot of education that needs to go into it, right? Like people don't understand the difference between FTX being insolvent in a database and actually FTX being insolvent in smart contracts. And the problem with the whole FTX thing is they were in a database and they were hiding things from people. And you actually can't do that on chain. Everything on chain is very public and everything on chain is auditable. So there's this educational side of mainstream audiences don't know the difference between those two things. Mainstream audiences think FTX was a crypto problem. FTX was a human problem, not a crypto problem. The first loans that they have that went insolvent on chain were actually like paid back because they had to, because that's how the protocol works, right? It's the all the other human stuff on top of that that fell apart. And I think that's a, an education problem. Folks need to understand what it means to self-custody. And then we need to have education and tooling and a bunch of things around that that help them do that in a safe way. Yeah, I totally agree. I think something like the FTX case speaks to the need for crypto more. We understand why something like a public ledger where things are more accountable for would, would really help us. Do you also think one of the other barriers to crypto going mainstream is the current user experience today? As a builder, I think you might know something about how today it's not really accessible to everyone. 
when I talk about crypto to my parents, they're, they're so lost. And, <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you what do you think can be done there to make it more accessible? Yep. I, I think that's definitely that's a subset of the whole custodial problem. The fact that you have to have a MetaMask browser extension and that browser extension is kind of doing your transactions and it's hard to understand and they're trying to do their best to make things safe. So user experience kind of takes a backseat to safety. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things that are confusing and just just hard to work with. So, so absolutely, user experience is a thing that needs to improve. And uh, just more builders working on this, more people uh, thinking about how to make the user experience better, more EIPs coming to Ethereum that help with account abstraction and other things that make that user experience smoother. Just... Even the approved pattern is a pain in the butt. So if in Ethereum, there are these ERC-20 tokens that are like so, so old, like we've been using them forever. But in order to put an ERC-20 into a vending machine, imagine an ERC-20 as a quarter and imagine the vending machine as a vending machine to go buy a, a bag of chips or something. You don't just put the quarter in the vending machine. You basically go to the quarter and you tell the quarter that the vending machine has access to take it. And then you go to the vending machine and you order something and the vending machine automatically takes the quarter in a second transaction and gives you your thing. And even that is just like, that doesn't make sense. Like that does not make sense to a mainstream person and having to get over that is tough. But the folks writing the original ERC-20 standard had no idea that they were going to run into these kind of problems. So yes, user experience is absolutely uh, something that we need to improve uh, in Ethereum before we can get more mainstream folks uh, interacting with it. Some projects like Lens Protocol are working on on making gasless transactions a possibility in Ethereum. And this means that you load your wallet once with some money and then you continue interacting with applications. And, and at every interaction, you're not paying gas fees or doing the whole approval. So the kind of effort the space is putting in here is moving towards a better user experience. And hopefully we can we can have that soon. We, we actually had gasless transactions a long time ago. I mean, like in 2019, we were presenting a full like paymaster gasless transaction solution where a protocol could technically just pay the gas for their users and their users just have to sign messages. There's even a, the permit standard in ERC-20. What we found was not very many people use that. That, that like gasless transactions only work when it's on a protocol that the fees are so cheap that it's fine for the protocol to pay. But if you imagine gasless transactions on mainnet Ethereum and you're trying to do a Uniswap and it costs $3 per swap, like Uniswap cannot cover those fees. And it's just something that the user has to cover. So we've had gasless transactions for a long time and they don't seem to be the thing that gets mainstream. Like you can go to nifty.inc right now. It's a an art platform we built uh, years ago, and it uses meta transactions. So if you go to Nifty Inc., it's going to use a burner wallet and meta transactions. You can open Nifty, N-I-F-T-Y dot Inc. on a tablet, right? You can go to Nifty dot Inc. on a tablet. You can draw something and you can hit Inc. And it's actually going to create an NFT on chain and you're not going to pay anything. It, you don't even know like what account is it connected, right? We, we generate you an account, and then we use that account to sign a cryptographic message. And then we take that message and we put it on chain and we pay the gas, but it's still cryptographically proven that you signed the message. So the artwork is still attached to your account, but still 
that's us on a very cheap network paying people's gas. And that does upgrade to Ethereum. But we've had that for years and it didn't seem to be the thing that really took off. It, it was sort of like account abstraction in the wrong way. And I think we're moving to account abstraction in the right way now. And it's going to have to do with smart contract wallets and delegated execution and some of these other account abstraction EIPs that are coming through the pipeline for Ethereum. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Austin Griffith about Web3. Stick with us and we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. I'm Hari. We've been speaking with Austin Griffith about blockchain and how Web3 helps build a fair internet. We were just talking about some of the barriers that exist in crypto going mainstream today. A barrier I personally felt was in translating some of my learnings from the traditional web to what Web3 is. And it was at this point that I discovered Austin's content and they helped me learn my baby steps and a lot more over a very short period of time. So I'd like to take some time out to talk about Speedrun Ethereum, the curriculum Austin's created. Austin, what is Speedrun Ethereum? How does one use it to build a Web3 developer profile? So Speedrun Ethereum is a set of challenges that are handcrafted to teach you um, about building on Ethereum, but they're built in a specific way to give you the aha moments. I, I spent a lot of time mentoring a lot of developers and uh, kind of studying even how they learned and what things stuck and what things didn't stick. And then I took that information and used it to build this curriculum. So it's a fine-tuned curriculum after years of learning how people learn Ethereum to teach you like really zoomed in the aha moments of why Ethereum is so powerful. I think that to lean into something, a, a specific concept, you said traditional Web 2 technologies and getting into Web 3 and just like the difference in the mental model. One really good example of that is a cron job. Okay, we're about to get really nerdy out there. I don't know how many of our listeners know what a cron job is, but in traditional tech, you have these services that need to run. Maybe once a night, you need to have the service run to clean out your logs. The way you do that is you go to a machine and you say, hey, machine, I need you to run once every night at midnight. Make sure you do it. Check in with me when you're done and you're done. And that cron job runs and you know maybe a few weeks down the line, something falls over because the box fills up or something like that. But in general, you kind of know that cron job is going to run. In Web3, a Web3 cron job is very different. Let's say it's a protocol that has some kind of compounding interest. I don't even know if that's how compounding interest works on chain, but I'm just using this as an example. And every night, you need to have some service that runs. On Ethereum, nothing is automatic. Everything has to be poked with a transaction, and you have to pay gas to make that transaction happen. So let's say we need this service to run every night. We need to do some compounding interest stuff that I don't totally understand. The way you make that cron job work is 
you write the rules correctly in the vending machine. Going back to this vending machine that anyone can get to at any time, we're going to have a big red button on the vending machine that says push this once a night. Then we're going to write the rules correctly. So if someone pushes the button, it can't be pushed again for another 24 hours. And the second thing that's very, very important here is incentives. We're going to incentivize the person, whoever pushes that button, they're going to get paid a couple hundred bucks or something along those lines. So the combination of writing the rules correctly and having the incentives aligned to have the behavior that you want to happen, putting that in a public vending machine that anybody can get to, that's how you create a cron job on Web3. That's how you create a task that will always run no matter what. You write the rules correctly and you create incentives around those rules to make sure people are incentivized to push the button and the button always gets pushed. And that mental model shift between I go to a machine and I tell it to do what I need it to do compared to I write the machine correctly and the world basically interacts with it in the way that I want them to. And that mental model shift was different. A second might be the staking challenge where you're getting a bunch of people to coordinate financially. That's really easy to do in the traditional world. You just say, hey, you know, hurry, send me 10 bucks on Venmo. And I go to my brother and I say, you send me 10 bucks to Venmo. And then all of a sudden, I've got the money together to pay for the meal. But in Web3, that doesn't work that way. You don't trust each other, right? You need some kind of escrow system. You need to be able to do that thing where you collect money from a bunch of friends, but in a way where maybe you don't trust those friends and those friends could grief each other. And you need to write the contract in a way where people can't lose money. Sorry, long rant on speedrun Ethereum, but it is a difference in mental model going from a traditional web to web three. I'm putting quotes around it now too. I feel like web three is almost a bad name at this point. Building decentralized apps. How about that? Right. Yeah. So even for me, when I first got into web three, Changing the mental model was, was something that was really important to think of things differently, to get the whole identity thing out of picture, because on-chain, one address does not necessarily mean one person. So in this space, thinking about software systems differently definitely did help me. Could you talk a bit about what the Build Guild is? Yeah, okay. So I would say like if we're talking about education, we're talking about learning, Speedrun Ethereum is the first place to go. It's going to be a very linear curriculum. It's going to take you through a handful of challenges. You'll build a staking app. You'll build a token vendor. You'll build a dice game so you learn about randomness. You'll build a DEX so you learn about hyperstructures and how to make a vending machine that anyone can provide liquidity to and trade. You'll build a multi-sig teaching you how to custody your own funds in a safer way. But then you're basically at the end of the speedrun and you're like, what's next? And that's usually when I'm in your DMs and I'm saying, what's up, builder? You've gotten so far, so far. Let's build something new. Let's find something next for you to build. And that's what the Build Guild is. The Build Guild is kind of an incentivization layer on top of Speedrun Ethereum. After builders get through and, and they kind of have the, the basic mental model, the Build Guild is about incentivizing them to keep learning. And we provide them with an Ethereum dev tech tree, kind of like the old tech tree. This is this is another nerdy thing, cron jobs and tech trees here. A tech tree is like a Age of Empires. Like a back in the day, you, you would have like these resource management games. And to play through the game, you needed to research through a tech tree. And you could research certain areas first to then unlock other areas. And we're creating one of those for the Ethereum mental model. 
If you're a builder, you go through speedrun Ethereum first, but then we're going to hit you with a breadth of different things that you can build on on top of Ethereum, all sorts of uh, different types of apps that work and kind of take you through that tech tree. To go down one, one little path of the tech tree, you need to learn price oracles before you can have decentralized lending, before you can have stable coins. And to get to a stable coin, you need to have the knowledge of how all of those other things work. So in the Build Guild, we get you through the speed run, then we hit you with this big tech tree and we teach you all these different rabbit holes you can go down on Ethereum. And so we're, we're about developer onboarding, we're about developer education, but then there's this kind of neat combo move that comes out of the Build Guild where we're also just building random prototypes and educational material and content, and that can kind of be used to give back to the space. And the Build Guilders are actually thinking about how we make even the speed run better. So some folks stick around after they go through the curriculum and they help me improve it and they help me mentor and they help me kind of help other builders get to that next step. That's great to hear because I think that's the beauty of blockchain, how community creates this organic growth. We help each other and we try to build on top of things that we've built and improve it for the community. Auditing might be a good thing to talk about too. Like in the in the auditing ecosystem, something that we found in Ethereum is that a lot of people were getting held up by audits. It's super expensive and time consuming to get your smart contract audited. And there were like eight people in the whole world that could do those audits, right? And so, you know, years ago, we recognized this and we started pushing for different things. But really, one of the biggest things that has helped improve this did not come from the top or anything. There, I mean, there is no top, but if there was the Ethereum Foundation trying to bless something to happen, that's not even how this happened. Like this happened organically. And what it is, is something like Code Arena. And Code Arena, it's like code and then the A is a four because they're elite hackers. But Code Arena is a platform where developers can go to see audits and learn from other developers that are auditing and get paid if they come up with, oh, hey, there's this security vulnerability or, hey, there's this, this gas improvement you can put into your contract. So, so there are these platforms like Code Arena, ImmuneFi, Securium. And they're a protocol that's incentivizing developers to learn how to audit. And it's paying them small amounts of money to get in there and find one little thing. But then on the other side, if you're a platform that needs to get an audit, you can throw it to this big group of developers that are all anxious about learning how to audit. And so they sort of created like the eBay of marketing. And it's a really open marketplace. And that kind of thing happened from the ground up. That didn't happen from someone on high saying, we need this and someone building it. It happened just like it evolved because of a need of the ecosystem. And now we have much better auditing and much cheaper. I mean, it's still like really expensive to get an audit and still really slow, but we're we're getting better and we're improving and new auditors are entering the space every day and they're incentivized to learn. And there's lots of resources around that. And that's just one example of the robustness of the ecosystem and how it grows naturally out of a need. I know that apart from Speedrun Ethereum and Build Guild, you've also built some tools to help new developers. Could you talk some of those tools and how they help a new learner in the space? Yeah, for sure. I think two of the basic tools that I created early on, uh, one of them was ETH.Build. If you're not a developer and you want to play around with some of these concepts, you can go to ETH.Build. And ETH.Build is kind of like this 
visual tool for drag and dropping private keys and blockchains. The second tool that I think had a lot more impact was Scaffold ETH. Scaffold ETH is a starter kit for building apps on top of Ethereum. And we've included all the things that you need, but you don't know you need until you really get into it. And I think one of the key user experiences of Scaffold ETH is you can write a little bit of solidity, you can tinker with your smart contract, and then it auto adapts in the front end. So you have a smart contract, and then you have an interface to kind of click buttons and send transactions to that smart contract. And that's all happening locally. And I think that helps a developer just kind of get into a routine of tinkering, testing their assumptions, trying things, shipping, and kind of repeating. And that's where Scaffold ETH, I think, was really powerful. But then once you've kind of tinkered for a little bit and you have an app, Scaffold ETH lets you deploy that app to production pretty quickly. It, it, it's it's a tool for tinkering, but it's also a tool for deploying apps to production and getting prototypes in your users' hands. So it's, it's kind of the base layer for speedrun Ethereum and Build Guild and all of that other stuff. And we're also building Scaffold ETH 2 that's a more modern, cleaner stack that we'll be releasing at ETH Denver in a couple of weeks. Awesome. That's great to hear. So for the new people entering the space, would you recommend they focus on building applications given these tools? Or do you think the space still has a dearth for developer tools to be built? Oh, definitely. I think that there's... There's so many different areas you can go into. I think that like it depends on your own personal background and how much, you know, like security you have versus UX design, you know, depending on what your skill set is, you can fit into the ecosystem in a handful of different ways. You know, on one side of the spectrum, there's sort of like auditing and being able to understand every little gas cost of the EVM. On the other side, it's like, we were talking about mainstream users and user experience. And user experience in Ethereum is not great. If you can build a wallet that is not frustrating, <laughs> you can get a ton of users because almost everything in Ethereum is frustrating still. And there are some folks doing a better job than others, but there's a lot of different places where you can have impact. And I'm not even talking about just technological folks. There's a lot of human problems in blockchain that we need help with. And just a smart person that is just in the right place that can help make things happen is even more powerful than a developer sometimes. Quite often, people wanting to enter the Web3 space feel a bit of imposter syndrome. And to add to that, there's so much innovation happening that it's really hard to keep up with what's going on as well. What's your advice to our listeners on how they can enter this space, but also not feel overwhelmed easily? You just have to tinker with things. I think at some point you just have to get in and play around with things. And sometimes that's super overwhelming. And like rolling all the way back to something we said earlier, it's full of grifters and strange internet culture. And so it's almost like the only way to learn is you just kind of have to click the button and see what happens in some states, right? So you want to probably do that in a low stakes way. Maybe you could play around on an L2 or a side chain. Maybe you could play around on a test net. There's a lot of different places where you can play around that similar to mainnet, but doesn't cost money. But I think in the long run, it's just, you got to get in and try it. <laughs> it's, it's about like experiencing the troubles of self-custody and learning from them and being able to improve them. And I think you just got to get in and try it. And also know that there's just 
a lot of junk in the space and a lot of grifters and a lot of stuff that you just kind of have to get through to get to the good stuff and the, the core technology and the neat things that we're building on top of it. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Austin Griffith about Web3. Stick with us and we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. I'm Hari. We've been speaking with Austin Griffith about blockchain and how Web3 helps build a fair internet. So we talked about the culture of Web3 and what makes it so different from what we've seen before. But it still begs the question, why are we doing all of this? What are the dreams that blockchain promises? So Austin, what about Web3 excites you? And how do you see it making the internet more democratic? So I'm kind of a low-level builder. I'm not like a high-level thinker. There are other people that I think could definitely explain this better. But I think there's something really special about the idea of hyperstructures. And this, this is a term from Jacob from Zora. But a hyperstructure is basically this, going back to this vending machine idea that we keep talking about. It's this credibly neutral vending machine that anybody can use. Let's say it's Uniswap and you're swapping between tokens. To make that happen, you need to have reserves. And to have those reserves, you need to have people participate. So if you imagine a vending machine, let's just go back to the chips example. We're buying chips out of a vending machine. The way this vending machine works is anyone can supply the chips and they'll get paid a fee when they withdraw their liquidity. So imagine a vending machine that anyone can put chips into, and then anyone can buy a, a bag of chips out of, and whoever put the chips in there that that person bought gets the money. So you, as a developer on Ethereum, you're creating these vending machines that people can use. But the liquidity providers or people who interact with them don't necessarily have to be a developer. And all they have to do is trust that you wrote the code correctly in the vending machine, and they can provide some chips knowing that they'll get back the fees for those chips. So I'm not explaining it in a great way, but this idea of a hyperstructure means that you can deploy this vending machine and it's credibly neutral. It's not going to take anybody's money. It's going to do exactly like the code says. And that, I think, is a very powerful primitive for building a lot of new technologies that have to have this trustlessness, this idea of, if I want to trade with Hurry and I put in my dollar and Hurry has a bag of chips, we can't trust each other. I could hand you the money and you could grab the money and you could run off with the chips and the money, right? And same thing for me, you can't trust me. What you need is some kind of intermediary where we escrow, right? You put in the chips, I put in the money. If everything's there, then it releases the chips to me and gives you the money, right? And we can build these systems now in a credibly neutral way on top of censorship-resistant decentralized blockchain. And they're going to run 
exactly like they're programmed without anybody being able to stop them. And anyone in the world with an internet connection can use them. That's going to be a very pr- powerful primitive for all sorts of things. Right now, we're seeing it used, you know, for swapping digital assets, basically. But going into, you know, funding public goods, going into giving agency to people around the world that don't have it. There's a lot of things that are that are coming out of this that aren't just, you know, NFT bros swapping NFTs and DeFi uh, bros aping in on shit coins. <laughs> There's, there's so much more coming out of it. And I think that it's somewhere around this idea of these hyperstructures and public goods funding and, and a lot of that. So would you say that a hyperstructure is a new form of infrastructure, except it's not owned by one single person and more owned by the community? The, that's a good point. So it's, it's basically owned by no one, right? I would say the infrastructure is the, the blockchain. The blockchain is the infrastructure here. We're just, the, the hyperstructure is basically a set of rules that live on top of that, that let people interact with it in some way. And you build this, this kind of hyperstructure in a way where it's unstoppable, it's free, it's valuable, I think one thing that he says is it's expansive. So in terms of you create a fee system that, you know, you want it to mostly be free so someone can't just fork it and take your fees out. But if you build a small fee system in it and you use that fee structure to create some kind of expansive system where new folks providing new liquidity can get paid fees for providing that liquidity, then you're going to kind of drive folks to provide liquidity. So, you, you, you know, you're thinking of mechanism design here on top of all of this, but you want this vending machine to be credibly neutral. If I put my chips in, I don't want it to be like, oh, those are Austin's chips. We're going to throw those away, right? It needs to be credibly neutral. It needs to be censorship resistant, positive sum, permissionless, expansive, valuable, free, and unstoppable. Imagine you can build these structures that have this idea to them, but then you as the coder can code up all sorts of different ways for people to interact with your vending machine. And that's, I don't know, I think that this primitive of coordination, it's its sort of helping folks coordinate when they don't trust each other. And I think being able to do that is going to lead to funding public goods and a handful of things that we, we've sort of failed to do so far with, with some of this technology. So a lot of these rules and the hyperstructure is something that's being built on chain. So it's part of this digital world. So how much of this digital world being built is going to affect us in the real world? Or do you see these rules being confined to a digital space or a metaverse? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I feel like life and work and everything is just becoming more and more online and more digital. So I think that like the the digital and real worlds are coming together and kind of colliding. And I think that we find ourselves interacting more and more in the digital world than in the real world. But I think that like, even in real world situations, if we can find a structure that can fund public goods, then all of a sudden, you know, my streets are paved better. And, you know, some of those like real, real base, real world things Maybe my community is more empowered to take care of things locally, right? There's there's all these things that you can, all these coordination games you can play with folks that, yes, it starts in the digital world, but then it applies to the real world in, in a very powerful way. Could you talk a bit about what public goods exactly are and what blockchain 
has been doing in, in that space. I'm really also like going back to the hybrid structure thing. I'm really bad at, at describing public goods. There's like non-rivalrous something, something, something. But I, <laughs> I like to think of public goods as just like this, like a park, right? Like imagine a neighborhood has a park. Uh, a lot of money has to go into creating that park. And a lot of money has to go into mowing it and keeping it looking nice. And a lot of people can enjoy the park too. But it's not something that uh, like one person pays for. What you need is to have everybody in the community that's going to go enjoy the park chip in to creating a nice park, right? And so you, you need to get people to coordinate financially to build a park. And then all of the people can go enjoy the park. And there's going to be like this free rider problem where – out of all the people that chipped in on the park, there's definitely going to be some people that didn't chip in that want to come hang out at your park because it's beautiful, right? And so you need to figure out a way to get everybody co to coordinate together so there isn't this free rider problem and have everybody chip in to build this park. And if everybody doesn't chip in and the park isn't able to get built, everyone can get their money back and not get griefed in, in a way, right? So that's a kind of like a weird smart contract way to build a park but hopefully it kind of at least like illuminates a little bit of what we're talking about about this public goods thing about you know there's a handful of different things in our lives that aren't created by just one person a collective needs to come together to make these things and you need to build the rules of the system so there aren't free riders and everybody can contribute collectively from that definition, I would believe that even Ethereum or any open source contribution to Ethereum is a public good. Absolutely. Because we talked about bringing in more builders to the space, one question that they might have is, what are the incentives for me to enter the space? Am I contributing just purely out of for selfless reasons? Or how does a developer get paid? How do they see some incentive here to stay in the space? Yep, for sure. Well, I mean, like as a programmer, you're programming money. <laughs> and, and I think in, in, a, in a really interesting way, some things shake loose from that that just seem to give more agency to developers as they're building within the system. And maybe that's just because like things like the price goes up. But I mean, there were crypto winters where the price was very, very low for many, many years. And there were still lots of developers here all building interesting things. So I think there are economic incentives for a developer to get in and learn this stuff just because, I mean, like straight up, you're programming money. If you're programming money, there's there's always the the ability to say, okay, let's take, you know, 0.1% and move it to a developer fund or something like that, right? You can build fees into the system and you can create them in a way where they work to kind of enrich the system. And I think that like, it's it's a pipe dream for sure, but I think about open source software and I think about how we fund open source software and I think about like the package JSON. If you're if you're a nerd and you build uh, Node.js projects, you have a little uh, package JSON that is kind of like uh, a list of all the packages that your app uses. I would love to see that have an Ethereum address along with each package that some app is using. Here's the address that goes along with all the dependencies. And if 
I give public goods to this app. If, if this app gets some funding, it would be really neat if it could automatically split a portion of that funding out to all the dependencies that it goes to. You, you, you've seen that XKCD where there's all these blocks stacked up on top of each other and half of the, the, the world's internet infrastructure is running on this package that this one developer from Nebraska created and is getting paid nothing for, right? How do we figure out a way to make sure that that developer is getting paid for their work and how do we kind of create these mechanisms we we create kind of some kind of game design where builders who are building good things are getting rewarded for building those things and there's no better platform to do that than you know censorship resistant credibly neutral blockchain to to settle to so a lot of builders in the space are doing valuable work and creating useful tools packages platforms for other developers oh yeah But one thing in the space that I've noticed is that marketing your product or your idea is quite important. So how important was it to you in how important is it to be loud on Twitter or YouTube to get the reach? Because a lot of package managers are creating good packages, but then it doesn't really come to the limelight until someone really finds a need for it. Yeah, this is such a good thing to explore in the Ethereum space. We do have so many builders building things quietly and not getting, you know, the respect they deserve. And I think in the Ethereum space, we're doing a lot of public goods funding and we're thinking about funding public goods. I think Optimism just had their retro PGF public goods funding round. And basically this round is you nominate tool builders in the space, and then they receive some optimism from the Optimism Foundation for their work. So it's it's retroactive. It's sort of like after you've built the cool thing, it's really easy for us to identify that this was a cool thing that had an impact. And so now we're going to YOLO some funds to you, almost like just creating the environment in the ecosystem that if you do ship really valuable things you're just going to get money YOLO'd to you for creating a public good and you shouldn't try to be extractive in, in your building. So I think that like, yeah, I don't know. The answer to that is, is really tough, but I think the Ethereum ecosystem is working toward funding folks and it is just super hard and you do have to shill. And I, (laughs) I hate to say it, but it's part of a decentralized ecosystem where there isn't some, you know, centralized figure that can say, go use this new tool because it's great. Basically you have to build the tool and then you have to get on Twitter and be like, yo, Twitter, I just built this cool tool. What do you think of it? And then people have to use it and give you feedback. And you really do have to shill your product to Twitter to be able to get traction and get product market fit. And it's just a hard part of how Web3 works. And we're trying to do better with identifying folks that are public goods and getting them funding. But it's just something you have to do right now in this ecosystem is you've got to get on Twitter and show it off. For me, it was like weird at first, but it had to happen. If I didn't get on Twitter and say speedrun Ethereum a million times, people weren't going to find it and people weren't going to go through it and it wasn't going to get the traction it needed. So it's just something that you have to do as a builder. You have to build the thing and then you have to get on Twitter and talk about it and get it in front of people and get people using it. Do you also know people in the space who are contributing without a technical background or is it exclusive to just builders and programmers? Definitely with the rise of the NFT ecosystem and the rise of the DAO ecosystem, there's a huge need for 
humans that aren't just programmers, <laughs> right? There's there's a huge need for people helping to manage, people helping to build communities, people helping to market these tools, right? We're going back to marketing. If you're a good builder and you could hire someone to help you market, then you have a big step up, right? So I think the main demographic is still, you know, technologically savvy folks, but I think that there's a huge need for non technological folks in a lot of different areas within Ethereum. And we still need those folks and, you know, get in and find out. You'll, you'll see it. Like pick, pick your favorite open source project and start following them on Twitter, start following what they're up to. And you as a non-technical person will be able to find their biggest problems pretty quickly. And you can contribute to those and you can help, you know, manage, help market, help with a lot of other things that, that can happen with community, et cetera. Is there a blockchain dream that you have or a vision, <laughs> something like your kids paying their tuition from Ethereum staking rewards or <laughs> public goods being all funded by cryptocurrencies, any such dream, maybe to do with the real life or the metaverse? Yeah, I think like maybe starting with just like giving agency to folks that don't have agency. If you have an internet connection and a little bit of ETH, you can deploy a smart contract that anybody can use. I think giving agency to folks, putting burner wallets in people's hands so they can self-custody, doing that in emerging markets where you know inflation is really high. I think there's a handful of things where blockchain technology can help in those emerging markets and providing agency. I think in, in the world of public goods funding, like you said, in the world of coordination mechanisms, like creating coordination tools, I think Ethereum can be very powerful there. I imagine, though, Ethereum is going to be more of like a settlement layer, kind of like a low-level infrastructure. Some of these L2s built on top of it, and then maybe apps that are built on top of those L2s start feeling more mainstream. But I think, yeah, the the perfect world would be everybody can self-custody, and it's easy, and it's not scary, and everyone can send funds globally without any restrictions and low cost Everybody can coordinate financially. Everybody can kind of coordinate in a digital way. And also just like, let's bring this idea of public goods funding kind of that we're dog fooding on Ethereum. Let's bring it to the real world eventually. And let's see, let's see better coordination mechanisms at a nation state level, right? Instead of me staking my ETH, what if North Korea had to stake their military budget? or something like that, right? Like, let's start playing some some games at a higher level that get the people, you know, going back to mechanism design. Let's design the mechanism in a way that makes people be good, right? <laughs> going, going back to the can't be evil versus don't be evil, right? The Google, the Google idea of don't be evil. On blockchain, you can't be evil if you write the rules correctly. Let's have a can't be evil kind of world where nation states are settling their score on chain and not with tanks and helicopters. I just have a couple questions to wrap things up, but before that, are there any topics that you specifically want me to talk about? I think, you know, getting getting folks to speedrun Ethereum is good if you're a developer. If you're not a developer, come play with Ethereum. There's a lot of fun things here. You can find L2s like Optimism and Arbitrum and ZK Sync that are cheaper and faster and more mainstream. Come play around with it. You'll have to wade through some of the BS, but once you get on the other side of that, there's some really, really interesting technology getting created. Through today's conversation, we saw that the potential upside with crypto is so much, and we have this 
internet owned by the community with a lot of egalitarian systems being built on top of it. Before we wrap up, can we play the devil's advocate and talk about crypto scares you the most? Or if there's one thing you could change about Web3 today, what would that be? Well, there's, I mean, there's just so much BS. There's so much junk. There's so many people that are co-opting the term Web3 or co-opting the term decentralization. And what they're trying to do is make money. <laughs> and if we could get rid of the grifters and have just the missionaries that are just like so excited and building and sharing, you know, but when there's money to be made and there's money at the base of the protocol, there's always going to be those grifters there. So I think that like, man, if we could figure out a way to create a system that kind of isolates the bad actors and gets rid of them and helps out the good actors, I'm not, I'm not sure. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, Jack Dorsey also puts out a tweet saying, have you heard of the Web5? Do you, do you yeah, remember yeah. that? Not great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, exactly. There's so much BS in this space. But I think we want people to be self-custodying their own money and understanding how to control their own keys and controlling them in a way that is not scary. And I think that that will take some time. So before we close the conversation, uh, what is ETH Denver? And are we going to be able to find you at ETH Denver? I'll be all over ETH Denver for sure. ETH Denver is a big conference for developers and creators and artists. And it's a hackathon. I think that the main event is a hackathon where people come from all over the world and they spend a couple of days building something interesting. And we do these hackathons all over the world, many times throughout the year in different places. This one's going to be in Denver, and it's a good one. And the first few days before ETH Denver, I'm going to be helping with something called Camp Biddle or Camp Build. But it's basically a boot camp for teaching you how to build and preparing you to build something at the hackathon. So I'll be all over ETH Denver, but also Camp Build and a lot of things going on in Denver here in late February and early March. Awesome. So uh, I'll be there at ETH Denver too, and and I'm going to be joining Austin and helping him out with the camp build. If you see us there, do come say hi to us. We're happy to talk to you. And thank you, Austin. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Hurry. Thank you for having me. I'm at Austin Griffith on Twitter. If you want to follow me, reach out. DMs are open. I'm always around. Go speed run Ethereum. <laughs> Go speed run Ethereum. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNEO Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Austin Griffith. If you'd like to find out more about his work, visit austingriffith.com or follow him on Twitter. His handle is Austin Griffith. I'm Hari, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Economies Design Lab. The show is produced in-house by Skylar Hugh. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about the show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.